Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lewis Giannis with WealthNet Investments. Today, I'm going to be talking about process and why process is so important. And I'm going to kind of use our equity portfolio process as an idea just to kind of communicate why we think a process is so important. You know, many of my listeners and people that are clients are really interested in making really good decisions long-term in their investment portfolio. And some people who are delegating their investment management, they just kind of want to know what's underneath the hood. And other people who are kind of roll up your sleeve, roll up your sleeves and get down into it and do it themselves, they're always looking for good new ideas. So um, I've been working this week a lot on refining some of our processes. And I wanted to go over kind of just a general overview. And what I'm going to show you is this kind of a schematic. It's really a high-level schematic overview of our equity portfolio process. So I'm going to be talking about screening, assessing opportunities, and portfolio structure, so or portfolio construction. Let's just get started on this particular idea. If you look at this chart, the overview of equity portfolio process, you see on the left side the screening part. So from the screening, Really what we do is we start off with the equity universe, like the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQs. We really want to start off with those exchanges that we can really get good uh, investment opportunities in. So we look at the entire Na uh, New York Stock Exchange and the entire NASDAQ, and from those stocks, we go through a process really more of elimination. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to get those companies that do not pass the basic tests that we need to see to even be investable. There's really three main things that we look at when we're, we're trying to go through that process. And the first is financial health. You know, financial health is something that's kind of nebulous to people. And, you know, they don't really, you know, it's like, well, how do you define financial health? When we're trying to eliminate these companies that have poor financial health, we kind of, we have a more of a process where we say, okay, what is the probability that that firm could face financial distress in the near future? And we look at a predictive model that is designed to anticipate when a company may default on its financial obligations. We look at this measure and we, it favors companies with higher cash flow coverage, stronger cash positions on the balance sheet, and it also favors companies that have trends in these measures that are getting better. So that's kind of how we initially look at uh, financial health. So if, if those initial conditions aren't involved, then we want to get rid of them. And then the second thing that we look at when we're screening is stewardship. And what we're talking about there with stewardship is more related to are the, is the management team and is the structure of management in the favor of investors or is there conf, are there conflicts of interest that really could mitigate excess returns in the future? We don't want to own companies that have poor structures there where management is, has shown a track record or has structures in place where there's lots of conflicts that is really not going to be in our favor as an investor. So I mean, when we're putting money, hard money to work, we want to make sure that we have an opportunity to put all the odds in our favor that we possibly can. So we get rid of those companies. And lastly, what we're looking for when we're kind of eliminating stocks is business uncertainty. And what do we mean by business uncertainty? What we're talking about really is the predictability. We're looking at the sales. What is the sales predictability? What is the operating leverage? So, so in other words, how much are the, of their total expenses are fixed? Because if you have a lot of fixed expenses, then you can have a very small change in revenue and you have big wild swings in earnings. So we want to know what, how much of that we're, we're dealing with. And we also want to know how much financial leverage there is. So how much debt is there? Because that's just, just like operating leverage, but it's more from financing from debt. So we're looking at those. And lastly, we want to see what, what, what is the exposure that they have to some kind of contingent event 
that is going to lower the predictability of that company. So that's looking at business uncertainty. So screening out, getting, you know, it's kind of like a, a fail or, or a pass test. So if they have the minimum financial health, the minimum stock stewardship, and the minimum uh, business uncertainty uh, criteria, then they go pass. Otherwise, it's fail and they're removed from the list. Now we move on to the next point. And now we're moving on into the assessing opportunity. So now we have this universe. And this universe tells us, and it's really, it's amazing how far down the universe goes from this initial step. It really does cut a lot of companies out of the, out of the picture. Once we get these companies in there, then it's a case of saying, okay, we're going to scorecard. We're going to scorecard each one of you like we're grading a test. And we're going to look at three main dimensions. And those three main dimensions have lots of subcategories within them. So I'm just going to give you a high-level overview. Uh, the first category would be quality. Now, what we're talking about quality is that financial health. I've already talked about what financial health is, but now we're going to compare our leftover opportunity set that we're looking at, and we're going to compare them to each other. Who has more financial health versus uh, a competing, competing company? We're also going to look at return on capital. You know, return on capital is one of those factors. Companies that have higher return on capital, they tend to earn more money if you don't overpay for them you know, they tend to reward investors. So we're looking for those companies. We're looking for consistent profitability. That's another kind of indicator that uh, a company has a moat around its business and, you know, more quality. We're also looking for predictability in general in the, the um, remember how we talked about the operating leverage and the financial leverage and all that. We want to see, we score those companies based on those factors. And the more predictability we have there, the higher the quality. Okay, so there's the quality score. So now, we also have a value scorecard. We're saying, okay, how much are we paying for this company? What are the cash flows? What are the earnings? What is the book value? What kind of dividends are we getting? What kind of growth, weight, growth rates are expected? You know, and, and, and if you put those together, that gives us kind of a sense about the value, what we're getting for each dollar we invest. Now, we combine those quality and value characteristics together into a quality and value opportunity set. So, um, you know, we, we like to have that opportunity set and then we kind of whittle down from there. Now, on the other side, the last category is the technical scorecard. And what we're looking for there is more oriented towards trend in price, volatility, and short-term sentiment. So there's, if there's factors, technical factors that have shown to add value to stock returns. They're, they're known as anomalies. And by the way, all of these uh, factors on the scorecard are generally considered by academic people as being, you know, anomalies. So let's get dive into the technicals a little bit. So we're looking at momentum first. It's it's a very interesting thing when you have rates of change in price and you have price movements moving uh, better than other companies over intermediate term timeframes. They tend to outperform in future periods, and it, you know, kind of goes against common common uh, thought. But that is in fact a anomaly that we see in the market now. There's a caveat to that. We look at the short-term sentiment because in the very short term, there tends to be what's called mean reversion, which means that, you know, the market tends to move in the opposite direction. So we're looking at shorter term mean reversion factors as well to kind of pull out of the data set. And we're also looking at volatility. It's an interesting thing. Theoretically, the higher the beta of a company, the, uh, the more return you should get. In actuality, when you kind of look at it empirically, lower volatility tends to outperform. So we're, 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 we kind of uh, handicap companies that have higher volatility characteristics and uh, give more weight to those that have lower volatility characteristics. So that's the technical scorecard. So now what we do now is we take that technical score scorecard and we say, okay, 
now we have our ranked technical opportunities. So now we have these two opportunity sets, a quality value opportunity set and a, and a technical opportunity set. Now, what I mean by opportunity set, we want to rank them. We rank them from um, you know, numerically, which ones have the highest potential to those that have the lowest potential, because we want to focus our attention on the most attractive uh, scorecards. It's like the, the better, the, the guys that are, and the gals that have the best grades are the first ones to pass. And we, we know that there, those factors are competing, quality and value and technical don't always match. So we really separate them out and then blend them back together. So we go through a process of picking the best ones and we get rid of overlap. And once we've done that, now we've got our kind of our final ranked opportunity set. From that opportunity set, then we go through a algorithm where we say, okay, you know, we're going through each stock looking at it and we say, okay, what are the constraint tests and do they pass them all? Like we want to make sure that we have a wide range of stocks that we can put in sectors so we, we can overweight a sector if it's more attractive. But we don't want to have too much room in there because you can have big, big dislocations and what's called tracking error. And we, we're trying to optimize tracking error versus the ability to um, make excess returns. So we, 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 we do have some guide rails and some guardrails in terms of how much we'll put into a sector, how much we'll put into an industry. So once we've done with that, then we get these, the portfolio, okay? And the portfolio um, could be 100 stocks in the portfolio, 50 stocks in the portfolio. And uh, that is our portfolio. And then we go through a process of hedging. Basically, you know, one of the biggest risks with stocks is that if the general market starts falling, obviously they all go down. So we have a process where we're analyzing the risks of the overall stock market. And when our research shows that there's more risk in the market, we will hedge. We will hedge some of that stock market risk out. So that's another uh, part of the monitoring and rebalancing part of it. So we go through and every month we run this routine again. You see it kind of cycles back. Who, who's in the universe? Who do we need to pull out? Who's passing? And, and, and it's really, it's kind of recycling through the process and always looking at it and saying, where can we focus our capital in a consistent way. And really what this is what this boils down to is getting yourself in a routine where you're, you, you have to have that discipline again, that habit of saying, I'm gonna have guidelines that are gonna help me go through my checklist to make sure I'm focusing capital in those areas that are likely to give us excess, excess returns. There's so much great stuff going on in the investment world you know, with technology and with just the ability to get out there and make money in the markets. So I'm really excited for those of us who are invest in the investment management business and those of us who are individual investors who are managing our own money. So if you like this kind of information and you want to get more, you know, I'm putting these things out every week. We're going to be bringing in other people into this, into the conversation who are experts in their field so that we have a broader knowledge base that we're able to share with you because we, you know, we reach out to a lot of people in our industry that are interesting and we want to be able to share that. And I want to be able to share that with you. If you like this information, you know, go to www.wealthnetinvest.com. You know, learn more about us if you'd like. Look us up on Twitter. Twitter is my, my preferred way of communicating. And I just hope you guys have a great day and happy investing and trading. For the latest episode of The Market Call Show, make sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Go to marketcallshow.com for all our past episodes and sign up to get alerts for new episodes. If you enjoy the content of this episode, please leave us a five-star review and comments. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. 
To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.